This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Director of Rugby at Italian side Pizarro, Nick Scott. He discusses his transition into rugby and why having an alternative background may have been of use to him, his lived experience in Italy and how this has developed him as a practitioner, as well as some of the strategies he has used in team and squad creation. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. Yeah, we're good to go. So, Nick, I know we've caught up off air a little bit. Probably one of the more cultured uh, pre-podcast pre, uh, meetings, a little bit discussion around Italian wine and stuff. So you're making me very envious. But how are things your end? All OK? All good. Sun shining. Um, it's a bit warm at the moment, but uh, we're on the coast here. So it's uh, there's a nice fresh breeze, sea breeze as well from the Adriatic. It's uh, all good here. Thank you. Perfect. So um, if you could just give everyone a little bit of a brief description about who you are um, and what you do, I think that'd be a really nice, uh, nice starting point for the podcast. OK, so if I, um, I go back to uh, where I started and also the, the kind of feeling of self that I have, I'm a farmer's boy from Lincolnshire. Um, but as a family, we're all obsessed by sport. My brother played uh, professional cricket for Notts and Durham for 18, 20 years and went on into a a great um, coaching career at Cambridge University, director of cricket there. Uh, My other brother, you know, has played sport all his life. So we were a sporting family um, on the farm. Uh, I did a degree in economics at Newcastle University uh, and went and worked on the farm, uh, but also played rugby in the amateur days of rugby union. And um, went into coaching when I finished playing. <clears throat> and the precarious nature of farming, my farm flooded one year, year 2000. Um, and there was a job going at uh, the RFU um, for three months. So a friend of mine in in the village, actually, Dusty Hare, ex-British Lion, said, you know, you might as well have a go for that because you're not going to do any farming for the next three months or have any income for the next three months. So I I became a rugby development officer for Leicestershire temporarily, um, really enjoyed it. And um, uh, when the job was advertised nationally, I took the job as RDO for Leicestershire. Um, But always coaching was my first love. As a development officer, it was always about um, player development, coach development, referee development, club development. Um, And when a guy called Evan Crawford came from New Zealand to set up the coaching department, I became one of the first four coaching development officers for the RFU, um, which is a great privilege. Did that for a couple of years, three or four years. And then I became the national coaching development manager. Uh, Evan had moved on and the the structure changed a little bit. So I became national coaching development manager in 2009. Um, And I carried that through. My responsibility there was for uh, everything technical from level one, tag rugby, level one through to level four premiership coaches uh, right right the way through the, the, uh, the system. Um, Brexit came along, which uh, I uh, was completely disgusted by, um, and uh, I thought I can't breathe the same air as Boris Johnson. So I decided to uh, um, move out to Italy. In uh, 2018, I became uh, director of rugby at uh, Rugby Colorno near Parma. Um, and uh, we were in the what was called the Eccellenza. Uh, the top is called the Syria Elite now. Uh, had three years there. Uh, first year was great. Second year was stopped in February because of COVID and the CAT Championship um, suspended. And then the third year there, again, Christmas, they suspended the championship because of COVID. Because where I was was right in the epicentre of, of where COVID really started in Italy. It was It was pretty frightening, to be perfectly honest. And then after after that um, period of reflection, uh, time in my life, I thought, well, changing lifestyle, I'll go out to the coast. So I'm 
in a Serie A club called Pesaro, uh, and I'm director of rugby there. Perfect. Yeah, I think obviously loads of bits for us to dive into. Um, I think if we we start at the beginning, what drew you um, to rugby in particular? So yeah, what what was it that resonated with you when you decided to take that initial job from from farming and going on a three month sabbatical, or when you were a kid and you know you wanted to go and play plenty of sports? What was it that drew you to rugby in particular? Um, in farming, uh, the hours are long and the rewards aren't always fantastic. Um, I think that's where the basis of my coaching philosophy came from. Um, farming is about uh, patience. You put a seed in the ground or we had sheep, you know, you can't shout at a lamb and get it to grow. You have to surround it with the right environment, nurture it, right food, uh, the right grass, the right field, the right everything and then trust that it will grow and and i think that kind of um uh that kind of background enabled me to have the patience or to be the type of coach that i am not every coach is is like that obviously but to be the type of coach i am um controlling the controllables and in farming there were so many uncontrollables um hit uh you know the weather the supermarkets the commodity prices you learn not to worry about them because there's not a lot you can do about it so going into coaching and as i said the farm had flooded <clears throat> when i went into uh, join the rfu um <laughs> the, it was more controllable um there were more things that i could control still a, a whole heap load of things you can't control in, co in coaching but it felt more something that I could have an influence on and and, and work with so it was a big jump I, I kept the farm we, we rent the farm out but it was a big jump um, but it's one I, I haven't regretted a single day yeah and when you you discuss the I guess going into that role, you mentioned it was a development one um, in particular in the local region and that became broader. For you who um, come from, I guess, a slightly more untraditional background initially of farming and then going through into that pathway, what were some of the biggest challenges that you found either trying to develop the game within Leicestershire or when it, it then went nationally, when you're trying to develop it nationally? So there's some challenges for me initially um were that as you say i came from a, an unconventional background and everybody else was a teacher or had teacher training um in those days the sports degrees weren't quite so established but everybody came from a certain background and <clears throat> understanding some of the language around coaching at the time to me as a farmer seemed unnecessarily complicated um and it was breaking through some of that stuff to um, uh, to realise that intuitively I actually did know some of this stuff. Um, I just couldn't articulate it particularly well. Um, so that was a personal barrier that I had. Um, the second thing, certainly in rugby union, I can't, I can't talk about other sports, but um, rugby was moving from uh, the amateur period, pre-95, into the coaching uh, sorry into the professional era and coaching almost took it for granted that the players particularly the newly professional players were fully rounded characters um because previous to that people like you know let's go in leicestershire martin johnson they'd had a job and they'd had to turn up for work and uh, kneel back and people like that had to turn up for work and cope with their um, everyday lives and their rugby. When the game became professional, there was a, um, a focus solely on technical and tactical things. And in the academies in particular, I felt... Well, no, I, I didn't necessarily feel it at the time, but looking back, there was a lack of 
focus on the on developing the person on the you know the holistic these guys came straight from very often private schools um didn't really know how to look after themselves and then were put into a world where they trained in the morning and then went online gaming or gambling online poker something like that in the afternoon and and were just left to their own devices so the biggest challenge in terms of professional players was um this realization gradual realization about the importance of developing the person as well as the player i think that's pretty well taken for taken for granted now but at that time it wasn't there was a focus just on gym technical tactical um for the wider game as a development officer um the the adult game was was in crisis then um and mini rugby was growing almost exponentially um and one of the challenges we had to deal with was the mini rugby game everybody was really competitive um and by the time a kid reached 18 if they weren't going to play professional they'd already had a 10-year rugby career and were ready to do something else and very few of them were going on into adult rugby and that was a, a function of the um the environment that was created at mini rugby level um so that that was another key challenge that we had to face what do you mean by that by the function of the environment um squads being uh lots and lots of uh tournaments which became festivals but were still tournaments in effect um with a cup at the end of it and a player of the match and teams picking um you know leaving kids at home not playing kids all through the season because they didn't quite make the cut. Um, and there are you know lots and lots of stories in rugby of of uh, play, particularly in rugby actually, of players who were <clears throat> physically awkward at ten years old, um, but became if people stuck with them, became good athletes older. But also, it was quite high pressure for the kids. You know, you see kids, I remember. Uh, there's a couple of things changed me. I remember sit going arriving at a tournament as it finished, and the um, a car leaving with mum, the, the the hooter blasting with mum holding the cup out the window, dad blasting the hooter, and the two kids in the back eating chips. Um, that I just thought that's a bit strange. Um, the other story is the rugby league story about the guy, ex-professional international rugby league player in Australia, who went to a festival and he watched the kids play. There was a squad of about 20, 10 on the pitch at any one time. Coaches were allowed on the pitch and the coaches were moving the players around on the pitch like chess pieces. And then he looked behind the lads who were not playing and they just set up a game, adapted. There was a tree in the way, so they played around the tree. Um, some of them were bigger than the others because they were mixed age. The lads who were left over were mixed age. So you could only touch a, a big lad touch and it was tackled, but the others could be tackled. They made their own rules up. And the this ex-professional player said he looked and these kids were just giggling and having a whale of a time. And then he looked in the organised game where they had to go on and they just changed completely and they were crying they were uh, scared they were like robots so those are a couple of things that really made me question the environment we had at that time in in junior rugby and so i guess part of your role would have been looking to try and change that and making it an environment more conducive to uh, ultimately long-term love of the game by the sounds of it because you want people that you know when they get to 18 go yeah I want to do that next step it doesn't matter if that's playing for Leicester Tigers or whether that's playing for you know Ronald, Ronald McDonald's pub team just down the road but I do it because of my love of the game and love of you know people and players around it so how did you go around um, doing that what was the framework that the um NGB put in place to try and sh shift that narrative and the idea of lifelong love of the game? 
So <clears throat> initially, as a, a development officer, you just have to be what you want to be, what you want to see. You have to, when you get over competitive people complaining about this referee at a festival and, and arguing that that this happened hasn't happened or that ha hasn't happened, you just have to exhibit the behaviours that you want to see in them uh, with patience and authenticity and uh, create a bit of trust. Uh, as a, a loan development officer in a county, um, you have to yeah create a, an element of trust that you know you're doing the right thing for the right reasons um and that you grow a little bit of trust as a coach development officer we got um uh it was regional and we got a bit more um a greater ability to influence the coaching materials uh first of all that went out <clears throat> so we wrote uh, some of the old level 1 or we contributed to some of the old level 1 and level 2 um and worked on that as well as having a greater influence on the you know specifically on the coaches around us uh which helped the way i did that was as a coach development officer was identify it's like being a coach with players you identify the right people with um who you feel who you get on with and who you feel you have share the same values um, and empower them to identify the right people. You you grow a network without having to be um, the one in the one who is seen everywhere. I've always been uncomfortable with uh, being the centre of attention. I'd much rather just let other people, you know, quietly speak to other people, quietly influence other people, and let them take the. Um, uh, take the uh, benefit, take the the glory, if you like, for what they do. Um, <clears throat> as national manager, um, I rewrote the level one uh, to start with, and kind of uh, Jean Cote was a, a academic, Canadian academic, and he talked about, and and also other people talked about the five C's, um, not just developing. Um, uh, not just developing the technical, tactical, physical, but also the the character of people. And it was um, competence, confidence, connection, character uh, became the core of our uh, level one offer, um, and then level two offer. We did a little um, a little task at the start of them. We asked coaches to uh, these are community coaches to identify uh, the best player they've ever coached and then write, not their name, but think of the best player you've ever coached and then what made them the best player you've ever coached. And actually, 90%, 99% of the coaches wrote down a whole load of things that weren't tactical, technical or tactical. They were about the person. So we said, right, well, we're on the same um, wavelength here because you've just identified yourself that these are the key things about coaching not uh, <clears throat> technical technical tactical stuff um, then a couple of people really influenced me and I you know I got on really well with was um, John Fletcher who's gone up to Scotland now and Russell Earnshaw and, and Pete Walton uh, as well um, Rick Shuttleworth and then in, at the elite level, uh, Kevin Bowring, um, they were all kind of, we were quite a, a close team. Um, uh, there was a close team to work with technically, um, which we all, we all came from a similar viewpoint, standpoint, and we all added slightly different things. So um, it, it was a, you know, quite a long pathway really to get to where it, you know, it took 10 years to get to where where it was yeah you've named a few former guests there and I, I can confirm the interactions I've had with them it has been equally um insightful and as you said in, in terms of what what they're looking to do which is really good how do you go around challenging um I guess challenging those long-held views because if you do 
that's but from what it sounds like is those behaviors or those ideas are pretty well ingrained at that point in terms of having lots of festivals and lots of tournaments it's probably where a lot of the senior players at that point have grown up playing through so some of the names you mentioned earlier like your martin johnson's your neil backs etc have probably come through a similar pathway how do you go around challenging that um from a structural point of view you've mentioned about having that network but there obviously becomes a point where you're going right we're going to shift course here and we're going to shift what we do from a festival point of view or a game format point of view or whatnot so how did you go around actually de- delivering that to to coaches and to, to clubs to say this is the direction we want to move into along with the rationale why of what you've just explained working really hard on personal influence lots and lots it works really well in here here in italy actually lots of coffees lots of chats lots of um informal uh discussions uh away from the course or away from meetings you know but just over a beer or over a coffee um i think that's important also i was lucky enough to have have coached at every level um so i've I've done mini rugby um i've done uh youth rugby um for a number of years i'm I'm an old man i you know i've been around a long time I usually knew somebody. I got it to myself to the point where I knew somebody who knew somebody. Um, so I could always quote experiences. Um, I could always quote other people. Um, but it's that whole, um, you've got to be authentic in yourself. You've got to be able to, as the old saying, if you can't explain it in a sentence, you probably don't understand it fully yourself. So you have to have thought things through. One of my earlier, a lady called Penny Crisford pointed this out to me. One of my, when I first became national manager, one of my challenges was I would spend a long time working something out. And then when I worked it out, I used to get frustrated that other people couldn't see it, forgetting how long it had taken me to see it. So empathy for the listener, finding, um, points in their language, using their words, um, shape-shifting. I don't know if you've heard of shape-shifting, but shape-shifting is the, sounds a little bit strange, but um, the Native Americans, when they used to go out to hunt caribou or bison, used to live like a bison for a couple of days, dressed in the skin and track them and live like them so that they could fully understand how to hunt them for me it's not exactly hunting but immersion in somebody else's environment for a little while a bit of research into what they're where they're coming from finding out key words key motivations um was was really important in uh in influencing people and then ultimately it was very rarely nick scott's idea um it was an idea that they'd come to and I'd been a part of. So the way rugby was was organised, there were council members and there were key people in every constituent body, in every uh, area around the country. And it was a question of um, that process with those people so that they, the power of persuasion eventually gets them to where we need to be. Now, how did you develop those soft skills? Because that sounds like obviously you as a person being really skillful to go and speak to these people and over a period of time have dialogue that allows them to um, come to a realization that there might be a, a slightly better avenue they can go down. But I can imagine from experiences I've had in the sporting world that could have just as easily gone the other way where they take exception to something you say, or you come across disingenuous because you're having all these conversations in different areas so it's actually quite a skill to be able to do that so where did you learn those soft skills how do i learn the skills um i have absolutely no idea um i was the first person from my family to go to university and i think at university you learn strategic and critical thinking uh economics was a completely different discipline um maybe i learned it there 
Um, maybe hours and hours on a tractor, you know, 12 hours a day on a tractor alone. You um, you do think about a lot of things and uh, you can think yourself into a really good place or a really get bad place. And uh, uh, and you think through, con you reflect on conversations that you've had as well. You know, so I was coaching at the time as I, while I was working and yeah, you you spend a lot of time reflecting and analyzing conversations you've had. Um, the the thing about coming across as disingenuous is really valid. You can't say you have to be authentic. You can't say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. The message has to be the message has to be consistent, but the speed and the um, and the language you you use around the message, um, it's just like players. Some people want it direct. Other people want it less direct. Um, and it's about having an empathy for the person you're talking to, I think. Recognising, first of all, recognising who you're talking to um, and then having a uh, an empathy for them. I mean, that's been ramped up massively since I moved to Italy. Well, I think this is a really nice segue, actually, because I was going to say to you that that segue across. So obviously you mentioned earlier around what I agree with you was a very interesting decision to be part of Brexit. Um, from your perspective, you mentioned to make the jump across. What was the initial point to say, yeah, I'm going to do it? And then how did the opportunity actually come around in terms of being in a position to move across to Italy, uh, move across to Italy and take over um, a club and do some, do some work, etc. Um, I uh, I'm always afraid, not afraid. I'm always I've always been a little bit. I've enjoyed being out of my comfort zone, and if things become too regular and straightforward, and um, almost it was never formulaic with the RFU, but um, if things, I, if I become feeling comfortable, I, I get a little bit restless. Um, also financially, clearly the RFU was in a, uh, I was really kind of proud of what we'd built from 2000 to about 2016 at the RFU, a network of rugby development officers, uh, co um, coach, uh, community rugby coaches, a big staff, and there was a feeling we were going to lose a lot of those. And I, I didn't fancy really fancy um, being expected to do have the same impact with a staff that was ultimately cut down by about two hundred. I guess um, it it just didn't feel. Um, I, I so I got to fifty eight years old, and it just didn't feel like something that I fancied starting building all over again. Um, Italy, I've always been across um, a very good friend who's not not ever so well at the moment, but Andrew Jepson, who's worked over here for probably 25, 30 years. Um, and I used to come across and visit Jeppo. Um, there's a rugby club in the Veneto in Padova uh, where my son went and played a little bit over there um, when he was 18. Um We've always been a little bit curious as a family, and I was curious to see um, what it would be like. I mean, I used to run the director of, I wrote and ran the director of rugby course for the RFU, and I used to stand there and talk to directors of rugby and and realise actually I haven't actually done that. Um, you know, I here I am, kind of being it, what I sometimes despise being academic about something that I haven't actually done. So I had a real sense of what's it like to actually do it. And then not only I could, you know, I could have done it somewhere in England, but the next stage was to do it in a language and in a culture and in, in a environment that I would have to get to understand. Um, so it just became a kind of a bit of a, can I, could I, should I? Yeah, go on then. I'll, I'll I'll give it a go, and um, the RFU were fantastic. They offered me a sabbatical to be able to go and give it a go, 
Um, but at the end of the sabbatical, I, I decided that you know um, uh, Italy was uh, the the way the UK was going. Um, Italy was was probably a more exciting, uh, a more exciting place. It also feels here as though a little bit like it was in the early two thousands. We're pushing back barriers. Um, you know, things are there are still things to be achieved here. Still new things to do so that was exciting so uh, i think linking back to what you said around you know delivering to directors of rugby or future directors of rugby to then actually being in the role what would you say was the the biggest um difference of perception from yourself so obviously like you mentioned sometimes in academia or sometimes on these courses there's a perception of what the role is going to deliver or how you have to deliver it and then when you're actually in the role you have to act in a different way or there's some different challenges that maybe you weren't aware of was there anything in particular that stood out that was that was massively different to the content you were delivering on the course um <clears throat> I, th- I guess the biggest challenge the first challenge was language um i didn't speak hardly any italian when i came across and and very few of those uh, we had <clears throat> in the first team we had a south african coach uh samoan couple of South African players. So we had some English speakers who who helped me enormously. Um, but uh, I, uh, and there were a couple of people, uh, there's a guy called Ty Sterry who I'd worked with at the RFU, who was very good, and David Lind, an Irish guy who lived in Italy, who, who backed me up hugely. Um, but the biggest challenge I found in a club was Colorno is, a, is one of the most unique fantastic clubs um i was director of rugby over a fully professional team playing at the top level um we had a women's team who were champions of italy with probably seven or eight international players playing really good stuff now there's a there's a difference between a fully professional men's team and a semi-professional women's team which is a dor you have to compartmentalize in your mind um, we had under 18s right the way down to under sixes, and I was responsible for the coach development and the strategy. Again, understanding what success was, and more importantly, getting the coaches to understand what success was at each of those levels was was really really um, mind blowing. I used to be exhausted uh, at the end of the day. Um, Colorno also has a, uh, they call them the Buffalo, which is a um, inclusive rugby team for uh, got mostly guys, few girls with with disabilities. Um, so again, being responsible for that, the width, the breadth of the, I was their first ever director of rugby and the breadth of that role was, was just enormous. And the amount of um, emotional, uh, physical energy, um, but emotional energy that took um, was huge. One of the reasons I left the RFU was because I wanted to get back into coaching on the grass. But I actually found that was virtually impossible to do um, when I when I became a director of rugby. Yeah, I, I mean, even listening to that, I'm I'm exhausted. So I can imagine actually <laughs> actually living it would have been. Um super challenging and how do you put your different hats on in that role because like you said you, you've probably got one bit where you know the, the men's team if it's fully professional has a level of of, of resource and expectation uh, and ultimately performance because that's that's what it is then there probably becomes a tear down to the, the women's side whereas if it's semi-professional obviously there is a element of performance there but equally you know, some of them are going to go and have day jobs elsewhere and, and whatnot, and your expectations are slightly less, right down to, you know, under sixes where ultimately that links back to what we discussed earlier around love of the game. So from you in that role, how do you put the right hat on at the right time? And, and, and um, yeah, how, how do you reflect and be aware of what's needed for, for that individual or that team at that moment in time? One of the, one of the weaknesses of UK club rugby and I think club sport cricket as well and a little bit what I've seen in soccer is uh, keen dad coaches um, in the UK uh, 
and keen dad um, follows his son or daughter up through the age groups. So instead of being a you know from eight to under eighteen, instead of being a coach with ten years experience of coaching, they're a novice coach because they've had one year of coaching tens, one year of coaching elevens, and you know they've had to. Um, in Italy, when I came to Colorno and here at Pesaro, um, there is no school sport, which is an advantage and a disadvantage, but um, it's an advantage in that there is money available for clubs to um, provide the sport for the kids. And that means that there are professional coaches available, um, people who are paid to do what they do. And um, at Colorno and here at Pesaro, um, with our under-16 coaches, we've got, with payment, comes accountability. And you have a, a far greater, it's very easy to influence somebody if you're paying them, um, it, because it becomes their job. And it's, you're not speaking to a, a dad who has a different set of, um, uh, a different set of, uh, things that he's looking, you know, things that he wants from from the experience. Um, so, I having professional coaches who stick with the under sixteens. They've got four or five years of experience of working with sixteen year olds, which is really valuable. And the under eights coach, you know, has a few years the unders the, the the young age group you know they tend to be sports science students or people building their coaching experience very often they they're also players but uh, people building their their rugby experience so it's it's much easier to um have formal meetings than it is with volunteers and speak to them about the direction we're going the thing about you can be, um, you can be, have different measures of success. But as a club, what we did was have a single set of values by which each age group was kind of uh, um, measured by. So, when I first arrived at Colorno, uh, Dave Lynn, the Irish guy, helped me with this because my language skills weren't good enough. But we got all the parents and all the players at each age group from under six right the way through to seniors um, to sit in a room for half an hour and talk about what rugby meant to them and why they did it and what were the good things. And and out of all the words we wrote them to write, I can't remember how exactly how we did it, but five words that, that you know, they've things they felt when they went to the rugby club, um, all those, what they wanted from the club. We create a great big word cloud, and from that word word cloud um, came a set of values that were adopted, and each club member wears a pair of socks with the values written down them. So those those values are common from the from the men's team, right, with international players now playing, right the way through to the under sixes, which creates a sense of one club as well. Yeah, I think that's a, the sock thing's a really nice um, idea as well. You said it's something that carries through. Um, there's lots of tidbits in terms of that. You've got the New Zealand All Blacks legacy. They discuss leaving the jersey in a better place if you found it and whatnot. And it's a similar principle in terms of, you know, exhibiting these values. Um, in terms of, I guess, the, the philosophy around style of play or how you want teams to play, what what does that look like for you? Is that situational based? Is that dependent on where you are? Or is there a certain belief, I guess, from a tech tap point? And I know we're probably 45 minutes into this conversation. It's actually the first time we've spoken about anything in, in that context. But is there a particular way that you believe rugby should be played? Or is it very context specific? So there there is a way um, I, I believe the game should be played. Um, and I think in the junior age group, um, we we coach uh, the action before we coach the decision, whereas actually in a game, the decision comes first. So getting coaches to be a little, to feed back, I ask my coaches to feed back 
you'll see somebody, a support runner, make a, a great line, um, running close, superb support line, great decision, and drop the ball. And the coaches will focus on the drop the ball, the execution, rather than give any kind of a recognition to the uh, to the decision that the player made. So uh, I ask all my coaches to feed back just as much on the decision as the execution of, of the skill. So that's some, you know, that that's a kind of thing. And one of the things that um, I uh, and um, Phil Kearns and Andy Webb, who I worked with, we we all um, uh, with John Lawn as well. We his support. We was a game zone and a skill zone where you have a game going on. Let's say you've got fifteen players training, you know, and you've got an objective for the game. Um, you'll play a small game, 5v5, 6v4, in the game zone. And in the skill zone, you'll have a little game, a little activity going on, which really isolates the objective that you're trying to um, you're trying to get across. And then after a few minutes, the players leave the skill zone and work in a rotation, uh, leave the skill zone and immediately apply in a game the skill that they've just... Um, They've just been working on. So that recognition, so the game zone, skill zone became fundamental or becomes fundamental in, in producing players with the technical skills, but also with uh, the contextual skills. Um, had an issue with, um, we went in the early 2000s from being too technical. Uh, um, Brian Ashton was an England coach who was very much, Pierre Villepreux, French coach, was very much about jouer, jouer, play the game. But um, I found here as director of rugby, particularly in Italy, where fewer children grow up actually catching a ball and making tackles and that kind of stuff, you do have to spend some time on, and they don't see the game on the TV as often as, as they do in the UK. You have to spend more time on the technical side of things. So really... Um, that game zone, skill zone became fundamental um, in the kids growing up. Um, when you come to a performance team, um, managing, put simplistically, uh, you have an idea of what your perfect game looks like and you have um, what you've got, the players you've got. And the, the art of coaching is using all the tools that, uh, that you have in putting those two together, making your perfect game, uh, making the, the players you've got able to play your perfect game. Um, now, with professional rugby, obviously, in, in a professional club, you sign players that, that kind of, and you sign coaches who can deliver what you're looking for. So it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit more scientific there. Um, I guess from a, a recruitment perspective, like that's going to be part of your role, as you mentioned there, of signing coaches that can fulfil that or signing players that can fulfil that. How do you go around identifying individuals that are, are capable of doing that? And then also, potentially more importantly, doing it in a way that they uphold the values of the club? Because, you know, at times I'd imagine you've probably got a player, I look at someone like Mario Balotelli in football, um, he might exhibit a lot of the, the the fundamentals that you want in a footballer, but his attitude at points puts you in a perspective where I probably wouldn't want him near my football team. Um, so, yeah, how do you go around identifying individuals that, one, fit the bill from a tap point of view, but then, two, are also in a position to uphold the values that you and the club believe are important? So Stuart Lancaster always used to say that culture comes before performance. Um, knowing the culture that you've got um, and understanding the culture that you already have is really difficult. Is really important for me. Obviously, coming into a club uh, in a different country, I you inherit a culture. Um, changing that culture is, isn't always easy. It's, it's virtually impossible because most cultures reflect the society around them. Most sporting cultures, you know, very often, certainly in Italy, reflect the society around them. 
Um, so you have to find ways of, of understanding the culture and why it is. In terms of players who will then fit in with that culture, um, there's lots of uh, theories on this. Uh, the All Blacks you mentioned before, it's just no dickheads. But um, what a dickhead looks like uh, or, or whether somebody is a dickhead is um, is sometimes quite difficult. I've been around on you know been around a long time. Um, this is going to sound terrible, um, but usually within a couple of minutes of meeting somebody, I get a a gut feeling as to whether they're going to fit in. A with me, whether I like, like the person, um, but A whether they're going to, how they're going to fit in with the other people around in the in the group and with the coaches we've got and with the environment I've got, and I can very seldom articulate that. Um, I spend quite a lot of time persuading myself that's unfair and it's wrong, but it 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 usually you know I I maybe it's. It, uh, confirmation of bias but I usually you know I trust that um, I trust how I feel about uh, people and how I feel about things and how people make me feel <clears throat> um, the uh, there's I, I try and have a um, meeting it's difficult when we've got a couple of well, we've got a player coming over from Argentina um, do zoom calls but you can't actually see the body language um, there are lots of little indicators, you know, if you visit a player. So we had a, a, a guy, think, uh, we've signed him, think he's going to be a really good guy. Um, came with his mum and dad, he's 25, came with his mum and dad. And uh, we had dinner, you just look, I'm thinking, I'm reflecting now, this is on Monday, but, you know, does he help his mum, uh, you know, pass the water uh, across the lunch table? Uh, does he look after other people around him? Just just little indicator, or is he self-obsessed? Um, is he just all about him? There's little things like that that you can pick up on. Um, and the other side of that is there's always room for mavericks. There's always room for manageable mavericks. My showing my age, my first ever hero in sport was George Best, who I would, um, when I, in 1968, I was eight years old, and I just wondered if his skills were just absolutely outstanding. 1972, I was 12 years old, 13 years old, and he was sleeping with Miss Worlds and things like that. And again, I just wondered if his, his, is it you know at that age you kind of couldn't admire the bloke um, enough? Um, what he brought to a team and what he took from a team, I don't know. As a modern coach, there wouldn't perhaps be a place for somebody like that, um, especially in a game like rugby, where team is so important. The the fullback winger can only score after the prop has done the you know the hard yards um but there is always for me um a place for the maverick it's just recognizing doing a cost benefit analysis yeah and i guess it's one of those where if you've got the culture well ingrained enough around that maverick that the boundaries they do test the, the team will probably rein them in to a degree and say mm. listen we'll accept you know, maybe you not be fully engaged with this part of the program, but this part's a non-negotiable and, you know, yeah. allowing to do that. And I, I, it's a really interesting premise because I, I listen to a lot of different podcasts and I think the the thing about the Maverick is you, you almost expect them to be a Maverick on the pitch, but then to be completely conformist off it. And it's like, well, actually the two probably go in hand if they're, willing to do the things that no one else is either brave enough to do or sees on it is probably because off it, they're going to do similar and go off and do some, some maverick type stuff. So I think that's really, really interesting. Um, second to last question for me, which is obviously over your career, you would have worked with a lot of 
I imagine high profile individuals and a lot of successful individuals, both from a, a coaching perspective and uh, um, a, a playing perspective. If I was to press you on some key characters, characteristics or, or key threads that you've seen from those that go on to have success, is there anything that particularly springs to mind where you think actually, I believe that's a common denominator of those that have gone on to, to have real high level of success? I think there is um, one key thing I would say, and that's honesty. And when I say honesty, it's no excuses. Um, you look at a lot of um, uh, sportsmen and coaches who uh, who look for excuses, not reasons. And... Um, <clears throat> The ability to self-reflect honestly for me is hugely, hugely important. Um, I, I'm the world's worst. I and it's a little bit about self-management as well because if we've lost a game, and I usually when we've lost a game, I I'm angry for about ten minutes. So I go and. Um, collect up the tackle shields I you know I shake hands with the referee and then I go and collect up the tackle shields rage at the you know rage at everything internally for about 10 minutes and then I'm fine then I'm okay and then I can go away and I can work out the real reasons why this happened um people who can't let that go who have that innate um desire to find a, an excuse are people for me who I don't have a huge amount of time for. No, I think that makes complete, complete sense. And with your character here, it sounds like there's a big reflect, reflection piece, be it being in a tractor for 12 hours and considering yeah. conversations through to, to this now. So I think that's probably a premise that's worked this way through. So last question for me, which is, if I were to speak to either the people you work with or the coach, uh, the players you coached or coach, etc., how would you hope they described you in three words and why? Um, well, I would hope uh, it would be um, thoughtful. Um, I hope it would be creative. Uh, and I hope it would be supportive. Perfect. I think, uh, yeah, real, real great conversation with lots of interesting avenues to go down. There's plenty more we could have discussed, but maybe a, a second one of these is due a, a lot further down the line. But I hope that um, Italy keeps its sunshine and hopefully you can send some over across to the UK and I will catch up with you again soon. Okay, ciao. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.